Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, I think we're nearly there, aren't we? Nearly at the point of turning, almost at the corner. You can practically taste it, can't you? Could all this caution and precaution actually be masking what is really going on out there? And could that roadmap next Monday actually be far better and operationally faster than we imagine? I've got a theory and I'm going to espouse it to you right now. Boris Johnson is being, shall we say, slightly economical with the truth. Because here's a question for you. Do you remember back in these sort of dark days of autumn when they were giving us all these terrible doomy and gloomy forecasts about how bad the coronavirus was going to get, about how the NHS was going to be overwhelmed unless we did something about it, about how many people were going to die? All of these projections into the future of how bad things were going to be. Yesterday, right, we have a press briefing at which good old uh, Professor Witty produces three slides. He used to do about 13. Now he's only doing three. How come they're not projecting into the future of how good things are going to be? Why do they only do projections about how bad things are going to get? That would be my question. We're joined this morning by Richard Tice, chairman of the Reform UK party, with his take on just exactly what is going on and what the hold-up actually is. Are the government teasing out the inevitable lifting of the lockdown? Are they suddenly going to accelerate things when they know a little bit more? Uh, Where are their projections of how good things are going to get? As I've said, we've seen plenty of bad ones. And what will they do if Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, announces today that schools are going to open north of the border as early as next week? 0344 499 1000. PR guru Mark Pankowski joins us too with his view on the latest from La La Land. Harry and Meghan are to tell all to their very good friend and multi-millionaire Oprah Winfrey. She also happens to live down the road to them in Montecito, uh, the People's Canyon of California. There's almost certain to be tears. There's almost certain to be sighs. And lots of earnest looks. Harry, do you think they might be holding hands? Harry, hold my hand while I talk to my good friend and multi-millionaire Oprah. The Duchess of Netflix is preparing, ladies and gentlemen, forgive me, for throwing the royal family under the bus. That's precisely what's going to happen. 0344 499 1000. We'll be doing small talk with Barrister Bobby Friedman and Professor Carol Sikora joins us as well with the latest from the corona frontline and how the rest of the medical business is operating. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what are you being told by your schools, by your bosses and by your customers as well? We'll check in with our friends in the hospitality business too and we'll have a report on the rather shambolic first day of the hotel quarantining system. That doesn't seem to have gone particularly well. Surprise, surprise. You're listening to me, Mike Graham on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, get Richard Tice on the line. Richard, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning to you, Mike. Thanks it's very much. It's grey and gloomy out there. It is grey and gloomy, but I fear that there is some kind of a bait and switch game going on here because watching that press conference yesterday, and I think this is an important point, how is it that they could come up with all these negative projections back in sort of November and October of last year about how terrible things were going to be? But we haven't yet seen any positive projections of how good things might be. It's quite extraordinary. And look, it may be the Prime Minister is deliberately holding back this week uh, and, and then he's going to surprise us, uh, you know, like a jack-in-the-box next week and mm. give us lots of good news. Um, but um, but I'm pretty sceptical, Mike. And my first point is, actually, he should be announcing the roadmap this week. Yeah. You know, why We've got literally a week of limbo, of nothingness, of, of like, it's like a dead zone. Yeah. Um, you know, and yes, the vaccine programme's, you know, gone really well. But, but, but the whole point is the economy, the nation is on hold you know, school children's education is on hold. And so the long list goes on. Tragically, people are committing suicide by the day, by the week, because they can't see, feel, touch any hope out there. Mm. And I think it's appalling the Prime Minister uh, is waiting yet another week before giving us any hope. Um, look, it would be great if all the school children went back on March the 8th. Um, I think that's, that's highly unlikely. Um, I don't see any reason why they can't. There's no evidence... They keep talking about following the science, Mike. There's no evidence that actually schools uh, increase transmission uh, any more than anywhere else in society. In fact, the latest uh, stuff I've read indicates it may may even be the opposite. Um, and what really worried me, Mike, was over the weekend there was talk of a letter from 63 uh, Tory MPs, although uh, most of them didn't have the courage to put the head above the parapet and actually confirm who they were mm. but they said they wanted all the restrictions all of the restrictions to be lifted by a very modest target of the end of april yeah um but they were they were literally sort of slapped down within 24 hours by the prime minister who said no chance mm. so you know i think this is all um uh, julia had uh, tim martin on the phone earlier you know I, I think this is all incredibly disappointing and there's a constant just changing and shifting of the narrative uh, as as though actually they're rather enjoying this control um, and, and what's unbelievable now, I mean, to be honest, the main people you hear on the radio now, it's not politicians, you know, it's it's scientists that none of us have ever heard of mm. uh, sitting on some uh, some unpronounceable uh, government scientific committee who are all getting off uh, on the, the media exposure they're enjoying. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Van Tam literally thinks he's turned into Jean-Claude Van Damme, doesn't he? I mean, he, you know, he'd be next to be doing an advert for some obscure American beer, uh, you know, wading through the glaciers of Switzerland or something. And similarly, Susan Mitchie, uh, a, a Communist Party member uh, who's in Sage purely and simply because she's a behavioural scientist, you know, pronunciating on whether or not it's a good idea to go out of your house. I mean, I find it extraordinary. And this idiot, Neil Ferguson, they keep getting on to Sky and onto the BBC. Uh, it's a bloke who's never got anything right in his life. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, we were all told that Neil Ferguson had resigned uh, and or had been fired. Yeah. But it now transpires that he's he's at the very well, nerve centre. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't surprise you know, some me, Richard, committees and... for, for somebody who's never got anything right, he hasn't even managed to resign properly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really is unbelievable. And uh, but but it, it's you know, it's so important. What 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 we should be doing is positively you know, the Prime Minister should be leading from the front. He should be, you know, yes, celebrating the vaccine programme, but now we should say, look, we can go for it. And these are the these are the clear targets. Uh, we're making great progress. Yes, you can state the caveat. You know, in the in the, the sort of the worst possible scenario, of course, 
is that there's some new variant, which is actually such a massive divergence of a variant that in mm. truth it's probably a new virus, um, that doesn't respond to the vaccine. Well, you, you can arrange everything, all the roadmap, subject to that. But otherwise, you know, as every day goes by, you know, the cases are coming down, hospitalizations are coming down, the seven-day death rate is plummeting, thankfully. Um, but, but still, there is no real education from the, the government that you can never get to zero COVID deaths. In the same way, we never get to zero flu deaths. I was, however, slightly pleased that over the weekend, um, Matt Hancock has started to use the same language that I and others like you have been using yeah. uh, for, for months now. That actually, and funnily enough, Neil um, O'Brien didn't accuse him of being some kind of COVID denier, yeah, strangely. Yeah. Funny that. But he is now using the language of common sense. Mm. He must have been listening to you, Mike. He must have been. Um, he, he, because he's saying that, um, yes, we're going to have to get used to having an annual COVID vaccine in the same way that we have an annual flu vaccine. And yes, the flu varies each year. COVID will vary each year. So you vary the vaccine. Yeah. This stuff, it, it really is basic common sense. It's not rocket science. The government needs to be giving people that confidence, saying that they're going to be getting organised for that, and then saying how actually, um, you know, to make sure what are the changes they're going to make in order to ensure that there's never a fourth national lockdown. Because we know mm. that there are people within the NHS leadership and some of these scientists, they're rather looking forward to a fourth national lockdown. That'll give them all sorts of power again next mm. winter. But actually, you know, we should be... We should be saying, no, we're going to rebuild the Nightingale Hospital. So let's have an NHS reserve force of retired medics and doctors and nurses on retainers, on sort of online training, possibly doing a week back in a hospital once a year. That way you're ready. You've got a contingency plan. So surprise, surprise, when there's you know, a seasonal flu or COVID increase next winter, which there always is, there's always a flu crisis yeah. every winter um, or an increase in seasonal flu then you're ready for it. Right. You've got, you've protected the NHS, you've built in the capacity and you're then, you know, you're powering the economy on. That's the sort of leadership this nation deserves and it's not getting right. No, exactly right. I mean, I've said this before many times. I may have even said it to you, Richard. If the NHS was a privately run organisation or a private company and it kept having the same problem year on year on year because they weren't prepared enough for whatever the crisis was, the people running it, the whole board, would be fired. They'd be thrown out of the, the highest uh, skyscraper window you could find. You'd say, well, what's wrong with you? Why do you not prepare for something that you know is coming, that comes every year, that leaves the same result? Why are you not changing the way you operate? Well, this, this is going to be the new battleground. You know, whatever timetable we come out of lockdown, um, in a sense, the government is so stubborn, it'll be what it'll be. But um, the next background will be actually, OK, um, you know, how do we help uh, the, the healthcare in this country. You know, the way I describe it is that the NHS is, is probably the most loved healthcare system in the world. And that's fantastic. We love the frontline care uh, and attention and expertise um, that is given to those in need. But we have to be honest with ourselves. It may be the most loved healthcare system, but it is clearly not the best managed healthcare system. No. And it is clearly not the most efficient healthcare system. We, we, have, to, we have to accept none of us are perfect. You know, you can always do a little bit better. We can always keep learning. You don't stop learning when you leave university. You know, I believe in continuous improvement. And that's the culture that we need to build into the whole of the NHS so that we're ambitious, Mike. Let's say, do you know what? Let's, let's not only have the most loved healthcare service, but let's make it the best managed, the most efficient healthcare service in the world. And then we truly are achieving something amazing. And 
And that should be our ambition as a nation, in my view. Absolutely right. And also, now that we've got something like a quarter of the population vaccinated, uh, we've probably got a quarter of the population uh, having had the disease. You're, looking, you're talking about practically half of the people out there now um, who are probably not going to get it, basically. And if they are going to get it, it's going to be in a very much more weakened form. So you're talking about half the population and we ought to be able... I was talking to my sister in Connecticut last night. You know, she was. She, she started talking to me about how she'd been out for dinner. I was like, what? What are you talking about? You know, she'd been out uh, for a meal in her uh, local town, which has had restaurants open throughout the whole uh, process. Yep. One restaurant closed because they had an outbreak of coronavirus in the kitchen, shut for two weeks, reopened, everybody was fine. New York City is opening its restaurants on Friday. Um, you know, there may be some um, precautions and you may have some social distancing going on. But, you know, the rest of the world is carrying on. Duncan Bannatine at the weekend sent a tweet from Florida where everything's open. You know, and they've had no worse of a death rate than they've had in California, where everything's locked down. I know it's extraordinary. You know, the evidence is clear worldwide that um, the, 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 the hardness with which you lock down has no impact on mortalities. You know, there's no question about that. Um, you've just touched on a couple of examples uh, in, uh, in the States. Mm. You look at what's happened in Sweden. You know, they've had voluntary restrictions. They've kept almost all their school children in schools and yet you know their death rate is on a par with the rest of the eu and so, so yeah i think that evidence is clear many countries across europe have had uh you know they've had their schools open throughout this period and, and what what really upsets me is that it is it is the school children from the poorest backgrounds the least well-off parents who are suffering the most and yeah. they will they, they will suffer the greatest inequality of education, you know, relative to those very lucky children who, who come from uh, who either in great state schools uh, or in independent schools. And yes, they're getting a great online education. But it seems to me that ministers and MPs uh, who are making these decisions have no idea of the consequences, uh, you know, the, the suffering and misery um, uh, experienced by those children rowing and crying with their siblings, rowing and crying with their parents. The damage to those relationships is absolutely huge and and you know incalculable and i just think it's it's woeful that this government seems to have no uh no real pressure uh on them about that um the you know the, the education secretary I, i've forgotten his name let alone what he looks like um <laughs> you know is, is there still one well um, i mean i don't know whether he's actually managed to achieve anything because gavin williamson comes out um, never looks particularly oh, uh, on top of his game. He never seems to be entirely sure whether what he's saying is about to be snatched away from him literally the next second. And he kind of says something and then runs off. Um, and then it never happens. Whatever it is he says is going to happen gets reversed by Downing Street. But this is the other thing, right? What the hell are they doing on recess, by the way? I mean, you know, it may well be half term and some parents are getting a bit of respite from uh, their kids having to, to, to learn from a computer all day at home. But what the hell is Westminster doing shutting down for a week in the midst of what should be the opening up of the economy it beggars belief doesn't it you know you hear of um uh, i had an interview um on, on talk yesterday of with the brigadier phil prosser yeah. who said he hadn't had a day off since christmas uh you know and here we are yeah uh, a bunch of mps think that they've been working so hard from zoom zooming in and out yeah that they need a week off <laughs> i mean it just absolutely beggars belief mm. it's um, really extraordinary and, it, it, well, it's and you know, th this is the moment when serious preparations and serious debate needs to go on. How are we going to recover economically? 
And, you know, we're going to be putting forward a clear plan in these May elections that thankfully do look as though they're going to take place. We're actually, the, 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 we have to grow our way out of this crisis. And the way you get faster growth is that you cut taxes for the least well off, the lowest paid and small businesses. You cut the daft regulation, uh, which permeates through our economy. And that leads to faster growth. And you cut the mountain of wasteful government spending, of which, of course, we've seen loads. Mm. And that also creates faster growth. If you do those three things, then it's very simple, Mike. You get better wages for the least well off and you get more people in employment and you've got more wealth, more money to invest in what I talked about earlier, which is, you know, let's truly make it an amazing, world-beating, uh, efficient healthcare system. You can only do that uh, if you've got additional resources, additional money. That doesn't come out of thin air. We've got to earn it. We've got to create it. And yes. to do that, Although you know, I would, you've, got I would, to, you've got to help the self-employed and the small businesses. I would differ from you slightly about the NHS there. I don't think the problem with the NHS is money. They've got loads of money. It's what they do with it, which is the problem. They waste more money uh, than you and I have ever seen in our lives. And in your case, that's a lot. You know, but the point is, <laughs> bottom line is, um, you know, here we have a situation where I noticed yesterday, I just looked out the window here at News UK, happened to look down upon London Bridge. Because we forget how terribly uh, awful things are. There was not one soul walking on London Bridge yesterday afternoon at about two o'clock. Not one person. And it looked like a scene from a film. It looked like they'd, they'd closed off the bridge to pedestrians because they were filming something. It was just horrendous. Yeah, no. I mean, look, there is significant waste uh, in the NHS. There's no question. But equally, Mike, um, you know, it is also true on, on any accepted um, international comparison, We've got less beds per thousand population, less nurses, less doctors per thousand. And I believe it or not, our overall healthcare spend is at the lower end. Mm. So, you know, there are some issues there, but it may, maybe we've got too few people on the front line and too many managers well, uh, in the I mean, back look office. At, look, at the, uh, no look at the jobs that are advertised in the NHS, you know, diversity manager, this kind of thing, you know, um, you know, social cohesion supervisor or some cobblers, you know. I mean, that's where the money's going. Uh, sadly, it is. Uh, you know, we saw it with the uh, the assistant director, albeit it was in the police force. But it, it drives you mad when you hear about, you know, assistant director for fairness, for fairness and well-being being paid sort of, you know, 70, 80 yeah. grand before all the extras. Right. And, and that's only the assistant director. You and I, maybe, maybe we should compete for the director's job. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not sure um, well-being is my kind of thing, really, to be honest. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, it's a good well thought. Me. Let me just ask you one final question. Which slightly, It's actually about Gavin Williamson, funnily enough, because he is unveiling a bill today uh, where he's going to start protecting um, university lecturers and academics and people generally who are trying to be shut down uh, in censorship ways because of the fact that they say things that people don't agree with. More bad news than Neil O'Brien, who keeps trying to shut down a load of academics who he doesn't agree with. Um, but this is a good thing, isn't it? It is a good thing. It's pretty shocking uh, that it needs um, any form of, uh, you know, it, it's shocking that it needs saying at all, but it clearly does. Um, and, you know, if it needs legislation, well, it needs legislation. Um, what worries me, though, is that they're spending all this time on this and they're not spending enough time um, actually uh, on the, the real emergency at the moment, which is day by day, mm. for heaven's sake, get our kids back into schools. Um, and, you know, they're so... Uh, you know, in a sense, th that is important. Um, it's very important. Uh, but I really do want, you know, I, I want some urgent updates. When are the kids going back? Mm. Um, you know, I just hear from parents every day, literally tearing their hair out. Uh, and, um, you know, that's that, that's just not right. No. And, you know, we need to, 
uh, we've got to accelerate our way out of this crisis before we all go, all go start raving mad. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. As ever, Chairman of Reform UK businessman Richard Tice there making an awful lot of sense because he's right. We need to get on with it. What is the problem? Why are we waiting? And if it's because there is a recess, that is unforgivable. If it's because Boris Johnson isn't absolutely sure that the rates are falling, then he should be sure. Why is he not asking for the modellers to come up with some projections for what is going to happen in the next month? Why are we not seeing how good things are going to be a month from now? When back in November, all we were being shown was how bad things were going to be in December. Do you see how there's a missing uh, part of that particular jigsaw? We need to get this going. We need to get it done. We need to get the kids back to school. Nicola Sturgeon may well announce later on this morning that they're going to be getting kids back to school in Scotland next week. If she does that, what are we going to do? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, coming up a little bit later on, we may well touch upon the rather shambolic first day uh, of the hotel quarantining system. Most of the papers have got uh, pictures of people waving at them out of hotel windows, but also stories of people arriving at the airport not really knowing what it was that they were supposed to do. Uh, Some people leaving in private cars, some people getting fined because they sent their wife to come and get them. You know, faulty towers is what it says in uh, in the Daily Mail, the border scheme that's a security farce. Uh, all sorts of weird stuff going on, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's talk to Professor Carol Sikora, first of all, uh, to find out what his uh, take is on it all. Carol, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. And to you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I'm, my eyes fell on the um, the Times uh, first front page this morning. Vaccination is reducing admissions and deaths. It looks as though there is some good news uh, to be had this morning because it does look as though the vaccinations programme is not only rolled out very, very quickly and efficiently, uh, but the vaccinations are starting to kind of have an effect. It's there's no doubt it's been a triumph and it's been really the only triumph of the last 12 months of this whole COVID episode. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the healthcare factors, they're really going down. The, the, the one to watch is the daily admissions to hospital. And that's been falling precipitously and really dramatically. And quite frankly, Mike, we don't understand why. Mm. And so all the, the good worthies of SAGE and the, the epidemiologists have no idea why we're getting this cyclical behaviour. If you look at the curve for hospital admissions, there was a little downward bit in the middle of December that Mm. no one can explain. Then it went up massively, uh, and now it's falling. And uh, that, of course, means the number of people in hospital is lower, and the number of people on ventilators is even lower still. And that means the NHS can open up for business to everybody on this massive waiting list that it's left with now. Well, that's the thing that troubled me much last week when we saw how many people, I think it's four and a half million people uh, waiting for an operation of one kind or another. You know, many might be um, non-essential, as you would say. But in the end, if it's an operation that you need to fix something that's wrong with your body, it's hardly non-essential. You know, you need to have it done. Um, but it's going to be a long time before they catch up. But what's your thoughts about the, um, the, 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 the sort of reforms and the improvements that Matt Hancock wants to make to the NHS? I think the problem with Britain has always been, and people have accused me of hating the NHS and wanting to sweep it aside. It's not that. It's just been undercapacitized. It mm. just has If you look at any of the parameters and do a comparison across Europe, in my specialty, for example, you look at the number of chemotherapy couches, the number of radiotherapy machines, the number of diagnostic machines, MR scanners, CT scanners, we're way below European norms for, for 2021. 
So that's what has to be corrected. And no amount of paper shuffling or rearranging the chairs on the Titanic is going to address that. We need to have a massive expansion of healthcare simply because we're all getting older. Mm. And we know old people use more healthcare. So the older people get, which is great, it means that the health system's working to let you get to old age, the more you need to invest in healthcare. And that really is the fundamental problem. Mm. Uh, and report after report from think tanks, both left-leaning and right-leaning, come to the same conclusion. They may want to pay for it by different mechanisms, but the same conclusion, the health service needs some sort of boost forward. Yes, I think it just needs a bit of a root and branch reform. And I know that sounds uh, uh, like a very simplistic uh, conversation. I know that would be an incredibly complex thing to do. But it seems to me that it's not money that they're short of in the NHS, but it's just kind of, you know, efficiency. And it seems to me that there's an awful lot of red tape, an awful lot of kind of systems in place which are out of date. I know people who work inside the NHS at the front line, nurses and doctors who tell me that, you know, procurement's always been a problem, that you can open any given cupboard door uh, in any given hospital and find loads of stuff in there that was bought a year ago uh, that never has been used, you know, that kind of thing. There's no doubt that the, the management of the NHS needs a shake-up. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the quality of the clinical staff. No. Um, the whole, from the top to the bottom, the clinical staff are fabulous. And they have been, obviously, throughout the pandemic, and there's absolutely no criticism. But the way in which it's structured, with multiple layers of control on spending money, and as you say, procurement, when you, you want to buy some, whether it's ventilators, PPE or whatever, it's a complex process. Mm. And, you know, we've got, to, we've got to change that. And also yeah. we've got too many hospitals in the wrong place. Uh, we've had to, you know, if you take emergency services, it makes sense to centralise them because then you can provide 24-7 cover in the sort of things people that have bad injuries need. Uh, it doesn't make sense to have lots of little units scattered around. And most people have got a car now. Most people can use an ambulance service. So we, we've got to change the way we do things. And of course, COVID's changing for the better because it means we do distance uh, virtual consultations mm. now actually means there's less pressure on the facilities that exist because less people, there's less footfall into our hospitals. So we're going to get there, I'm sure of it. Yeah, I mean, before COVID came along, and you may not know the answers to this question, were these kind of sage scientists and, and projectionists, as I like to call them, quite as busy as they seem to be now? I mean, were they involved in quite so much health policy uh, as they are now? I'd never heard of any of them, not even the Magic <laughs> Ferguson. Yeah, right. and he was at my old place, Imperial College, and yeah. I'd never heard of him. And uh, now, of course, they're prominent. They're everywhere. And of course, not only are they everywhere, but everyone's become an epidemiologist. Yeah. Yeah, you just listen to people's conversation. I'd like to say in the pub, but I haven't been to a pub for some weeks now. And nor have you, I hope, Mike. No, I certainly uh, haven't. No, but I'm very much looking forward to going to one. And I'm hoping that I might be able to go to one in April. I, I think that's reasonable. But, you know, the problem for us, we, we think the same way, is that we get accused of being COVID deniers. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a, and you see it on Twitter, you see it everywhere. We're not. We just want to, let's push for an early exit. Let's, we accept the risk. Mm. And, you know, I've been vaccinated. You're far too young to have been offered a vaccine. Well, do you know what? I think I'm number eight on the list of whatever the nine uh, categories <laughs> you are. are. So, you are. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get one, I would imagine, or be offered one uh, by, by the middle of March, I think. 
you will, but you know, you and I think alike, but we're not anti-lockdown. We just want to get out of it as quickly as possible and not let the doomsayers drag it out through the summer into next into next year even. And travel is important. It's not just for elite athletes or elite uh, um, concert mm. uh, pianists and so on. It's for everybody, you know, international trade depends on travel you can only do so much on zoom and in certain countries it's almost impossible they don't have a a virtual culture you have to take the coffee with them uh, and smoke the the dreaded pipe in the gulf you know the it's it's doesn't cause the thing no right i mean this is interesting to me because i was saying this morning to richard tice you know when we watched the uh, the briefing yesterday there were only three slides produced by Professor Chris Whitty. And I remember back in sort of October, November time, they were producing hordes and hordes of slides, you know, like more than a dozen to show how bad things were going to get if we didn't do something. Why are they not showing us how good things could get if they continue on the, on the present projection? And my pet hate on the BBC website all the time is how they present the data, the daily data. They present it in a negative way. Instead of saying the deaths have come right down mm. over the last week, they present another so many deaths mm. today. And uh, it's done in that negative way. You have to be cautious with this. You know, we've invested a lot of time, effort and money into getting where we've got to. And if you suddenly let it all out tomorrow or on Monday, it could be a disaster. But, you know, we've got the systems in place to monitor the virus. We can know what the the, the, the variants of concern, as they call the mutant variants, the, the, the mutant viruses are we, we know how they're behaving mm. and we know the numbers and we've got good systems to monitor activity within the nhs so my feeling is let's get the schools back that's clearly number one priority and then start opening out things mm. and try and get it all done in the next month or two rather than dragging it right out yes i mean it does seem to be a sort of collective myopia going on i was looking at what they're doing in new zealand this week where they've had three cases of coronavirus and they've shut down auckland and you go well, uh-huh. hang on a minute i mean there's only five people have actually died in new zealand in total i i know it uh, different governments are almost vying and you see it with our scottish government mm. vying for the headline to say they're doing better and ironically uh you know they may be scoring an own goal because you know sturgeon wants to open the schools next week for example and she and clearly politicians want to show that they're in charge mm. whether they're in charge by closing things down or in charge by opening things up they want to be seen to be leaders and it's not like that we're all in this together and you know we've got the doom merchants of sage we've got the the much more optimistic people that my colleagues everywhere in the health service Mm. i think we've got to get a balance and really charge boris with getting us out of here as fast as reasonably possible i mean itn did an interesting report last night where they talked about the new modeling that's going on um, and they liken it to this exact same system that they use for predicting what the weather's going to be like, right? Now, as far as I know, they stopped predicting long-term weather forecasting uh, at the Met Office because they kept getting it so wrong. So they don't even do it anymore, right? But these SAGE guys, are, and, and, and quite rightly, as the ITN uh, report pointed out, Basically, uh, you swap pressure and temperature for infections, restrictions and vaccines. Uh, But like weather forecasts, these models aren't perfect. They're only as reliable as the data that you feed into them. So, you know, like we've all said before, of course, if you open up the schools, the R rate goes up immediately because that's what you feed into the computer. But it doesn't necessarily mean that infections are going to go up. 
No, and you know, I'm having a fascinating conversation on by email with a uh, a, a math student at Nottingham mm. uh, called Glenn Bishop, and he's pointed out, Dave, he's written to Julia Partly Brewer as well about it, pointing out the fallacy in some of these cal- these reports that have come out, mm. just simple mathematical fallacies. Yeah, and, and you know, and and they're being admitted by the the people that are publishing the papers. So uh, no one really knows, and that's the the truth. And uh, you know, that's why everyone can be an expert. But as we move forward, it's clear, rather like weather forecasting, the closer you are from some, the event, the, the better your accuracy. So we can predict next week. We can't predict, is there going to be a third wave? Is there going to be a, a third wave somewhere in the summer? So I've looked at papers from Imperial that suggest in in July or August, there'll be a massive wave flooding the hospitals worse than before. I don't believe it, but then I didn't believe there'd be a second wave, so I'm not the man you want to ask. <laughs> but then, <laughs> yeah. of course, I mean, I've had this conversation with Dan Hodges um, and, and others yeah. who have been critical of what we, what you and I have said in the past. And when we were saying those things in September and October, Piers Morgan was another one who said, you and Carol Sikora were telling everyone that it was all over, it was all finished. I'm glad that he took the trouble to actually look up what we'd said, or at least was listening to us at the time. But at the time we said those things it was correct now you might say that that's pedantic but it's true and it wasn't really until december the 18th um that that we knew there was a new variant which was much more transmissible and therefore was going to kill probably more people which it then did in january you know but that's now come and gone so it would be now wrong to say um there's going to be a third wave without knowing that Exactly. And we, we, we just don't know. I mean, there could be new mutants coming. It's clear that blocking travel does this fiasco at Heathrow, which is totally predictable yeah. under all the airports that do, which we're going to talk about. It's completely predictable. It's almost certainly totally unnecessary. And, uh, you know, these the, the, the mutants seem to respond to the vaccine, the yeah. ones that we've got so far. And of course, they can arise without coming from anywhere. They arise within. That's the nature of this virus. Mm. It wants to learn a mechanism that is peace that it can live with us long term and that means it's got to continue to mutate to avoid the immune system we develop mm. and, and and as we move forward yeah and then we'll live with it and it'll live with us and everybody will be happy because we could do all the things that the government wants us to do and more uh lock down more times and do all of this and then there could be another virus that comes out of china maybe not wuhan or that comes out of india or that comes out of scotland or that comes out of iceland or anywhere you know where viruses breed they could come from anywhere and be different and new and something else for us to deal with so the idea that we could somehow lop off um you know one leg and continue to spend the rest of our lives hopping around hoping that we don't have to lose the other one seems to me to be madness no, it, it's complete madness. What we need to do, the two good things to come out of this are one, better surveillance mechanisms for strange infections, not just viruses, all sorts of strange infections. They'll certainly come to Britain uh, and to other countries. They'll invest more in that sort of research to keep continual monitoring. And the second thing will be virtual consultations right across medicine. So people get used to the idea. You don't need to go to hospital to get certain things done. You can do it online, on Zoom, on Teams or whatever. And, uh, you know, medical students will have to learn right from the beginning how to show empathy on a Zoom conversation. It's a skill. Uh, You know, old boys like me struggle because we're not used to it. You know, we can't even get the Zoom to work half the time. That's the problem. (laughs) The medical students have to show us how to get the computer wound up. But but seriously, it's going to be impact on medical education because students are going to have to learn a different way of talking to people, uh, which will, will change the whole consultation model. 
Yes, I mean, I've I've been interested in the whole um, uh, sort of new way of communication which is which is built up and we've basically created a television channel as a result of uh, of what we do and what we're doing with you right now um and it's very successful and people like watching it and it's been tremendous i mean this morning uh, we had a woman making pancakes in a kitchen um with some of the greatest video i've ever seen in my life and it was just fantastic you know but but you know also we've lost the art to some extent of communication in person because we i mean I, I went to do an interview with somebody a couple of weeks ago and it was the first time I'd seen someone I haven't seen for a long time. You know, I mean, I see the same people at work because we are becoming every day. I see my family. But aside from that, I haven't seen anyone else since like before Christmas. Yeah. So obviously I, I've been to work two or three days a week and then part of the time I stay at home and do things at home, consultations and so on down mm. the line. What you miss with it all is the touching. And in medicine, touch has a very important role that we, we forget about. You just naturally learn how to do it. It may be a very small touch, maybe a shake of the hand, it may be a little nudge, it may be a slight cuddle. All these things are very important at times of I emotional news mm. coming out, whether it's bad news or good news about, for example, in my specialty, cancer. You need to know, patients want to know. And it's part of the empathy we try and teach people. And some people are better at it, some people are not so good at if you're really bad at it you can always be a pathologist and deal with dead people or a radiologist and look at x-rays so there's ways out of it for you but uh, there's no doubt that medicine relies on a whole lot of signals that are difficult to communicate completely in a virtual medium it has to be done for real yeah. and you know, in the end we'll get there we'll get back to normal business but a lot of the drudgery of medicine the sort of routine follow-ups and so on which are drudgery for the patient as well as for the doctors because uh, you know they can be done remotely blood tests can be done locally results sent and then you have your consultation mm. and follow-up can be done in a much better much more efficient way and for those people who are waiting you know the millions who are waiting for something to be done uh, inside the nhs is there a quick fix for that do you think i mean could they use the nightingales for anything like those kinds of treatments the trouble with the nightingales they've been they were probably a mistake well they were a mistake i think we all agree although you know you couldn't have predicted where the peak would stop and mm. therefore they were a backdrop for it so you could probably justify them on that basis but they had no staff that's mm. the thing where do you get the staff from you take them from the hospital that's where you need the staff so uh moving them to the one in the xl in east london for example uh, you know i've been there to conferences and it's massive and it, you know it's not a bad place to have it but there were no staff coming with it so it never really I mean, there was a few token openings for people recovering from covid but it wasn't used for real uh, i think the future has got to be about speeding things up speeding the diagnostic pathways up trying to get the services to work extended hours i know staff don't like that but for example if you've got a scanner that's open eight hours a day and you extend it to 12 well you're getting 50 percent more productivity yeah. out of it more yeah. patients are going through it and that's what we've got to do with the backlog now sounds like far too much common sense professor i'm afraid but let's see if we can uh, uh, inject it into some of the people that run the nhs thank you very much indeed as ever for talking to us professor carol sakura former head of the world health organization cancer program dean of medicine at the university of buckingham 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I was talking to uh, Professor Carol Sikora there about the art of um, Zoom calling because a lot of people for the first time have had to somehow communicate with one another uh, remotely whereby they sit in front of a computer screen, see a load of other people on the computer screen and try and interact with them. I'm not sure entirely what the etiquette of that kind of thing is. Luckily, I don't have to do too much of it. Uh, I'm mostly, if I'm, if I'm doing it at all, I'm either appearing on talk radio here or on Sebastian Gorka's show in America or uh, I'm doing something with the IEA, which I think I'm doing uh, one uh, this week, a kind of webinar type thing, but there's not that many people on. But one of the things that's happened to a lot of people is they've sort of lost the art of social interaction. They've forgotten what it's like to talk to people in person, so much so uh, that a university law school, PPP, uh, apparently has brought an offering to students the first time uh, that they've ever done something like this, basically teaching them how to get involved in small talk because people have apparently forgotten how to do it. We're going to talk now to Bobby Friedman, barrister, political commentator, uh, often on talk radio uh, on The Breakfast Show with Julie Hartley Brewer. Bobby, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. It's a terrible uh, thing to have to admit to that we've kind of lost the art of of talking to one another. I mean, luckily, uh, in my business, that's not the case and and neither would it be in yours. But uh, this is an extraordinary turn up for the books, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think you need any help with talking to anybody, Mike. Uh, I mean, I literally go home at the weekends and the first thing that mostly is said to me is you're not on the bleeding radio now. Shut up for a while, you know. Well, I, I may have had similar sentiments expressed towards me as well, I have to admit. Uh, but look, I mean, I, I, th- I think this is actually pretty helpful. Uh, it's not not everybody, and, and it, may, it may surprise people, obviously, not everyone in the legal profession actually is necessarily that verbose, as verbose as I am. And they do sometimes need a bit of, a, bit of help. But most of all, I find that the key thing when it comes to work is you want to work with people you get on with. So... You want to, you obviously do a good job, and you hope that people like the job that you do. But the, but actually, what's even more important is is that you do build up that personal relationship. And I, and I think breaking the ice, getting started, making contacts is the kind of thing that is a a necessary evil. And actually, once you do it, you make good friends, and and, and it works. So it helps your career. And I think that the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that in terms of social mobility. If you are a kind of public school Oxbridge type person, of course, you can walk into a room and get into any conversation you like and tell great anecdotes because it's that, it's, it's that kind of, sort of smarminess that you, you get taught from birth almost. For people who don't, haven't necessarily come from that background, I think it's really important that they, that they learn the, the, the skills if they don't have them already. To, and, and so I do think it's an important social mobility tool. So do you think it's something that everybody can learn depending upon what their, what their sort of circumstances are then? Because, I mean, I'm assuming that, I mean, I grew up in a very verbose household because both my parents were Scottish. And I mean, arguing around the dinner table 
not in a bad way, was, was thought to be the way to spend dinner. You know, you basically discuss things constantly. And there was always an idea that was being talked about. And even at a young age, I seem to remember, you know, just rowing with, with my parents about <laughs> ideas, you know, um, which has probably treated me, um, uh, prepared me very well for what I do now. But, I mean, I suppose if you don't have that experience at home and you don't really get it at school, then you may never learn how to do it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Some people do just come from those kinds of households. I did too, where you're around the dinner table, where you're arguing, where uh, you know people say to you, "Why are you shouting?" You say, "I'm not shouting. We're just having a discussion." <laughs> right. Um, but I do think some people don't don't get that, and it and it is important. It is a learned skill, and it's something that even I've found over the past few years. You do get better. It can be daunting. However, however many times you've done it before, when you go into a room, you don't know anybody and you have to break into a circle of people and just say, hello, mind if I join you and go for it from there. It, mm. can, it can be daunting. Don't get me wrong, of course. Some people are just innately a bit rubbish at it. Some people are just a bit boring mm. and it's not great fun talking to them. And unfortunately, you can't necessarily learn your way out of it. But but everybody can, can know how to get, can learn how to get a conversation started. And as I say, those kind of relationships that you that you get from one conversation can lead to to, to friendships, can lead to better work. So I, d I do think it, it is a genuine and necessary skill as part of a lot mm. of people's jobs. Certainly, is for lawyers. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are people that you want to avoid, aren't there? Just because they are quite boring. I mean, everybody can name someone in any office that nobody wants to go to the pub with. I mean, we when I worked in the, at the Mirror, actually, there was one particular guy uh, who was so boring that he, we used to nominate someone to take him out for a drink every day so that we could all go somewhere else. <laughs> and it was like a rotor system. It worked very well. So you never got stuck with him unless you absolutely had to do it as a service to everybody else. Well, I, I can tell you certainly from, uh, from our, my work Christmas party, mm. you can always tell where you sit in the affections of the head of marketing by who you're put next to at the work Christmas party. Right. There are always good seats and there are always bad seats. And it, as I say, it's the same in life. And actually, what you will find is there are some people who you just don't click with. And that, unfortunately, is part and parcel of, of everyday life that some people you get on with, some people you mm. don't. But, but it, it's about having that confidence that you can express yourself so you can find the ones that you get on with and uh, you can find the ones that you don't. I mean, the piece of the Times also says that a lot of younger people are now more familiar with uh, sort of communicating digitally, which I think is true. Um, and my daughter, for example, sends constant uh, voice messages to me, you know, on WhatsApp, which I hate because, um, one, I can't listen to them if I'm on the radio. Uh, and two, um, she expects me to send her one back. And I find it really irritating uh, to do that. But, but you know, uh, she's very garrulous and gets on with people and is very good at walking up to people. But is there also a problem with sort of people being frightened of being misconstrued or, or you know, like if you, if you were a, a young man going into a, a university for the first time on Freshers' Week and you go up to a, a young woman and your, uh, whatever you say to her, small talk-wise, is, is thought to be something which you shouldn't have said. Well, I do think there is actually a wider issue that is part of the problem with networking, which is actually that equally we do, we do know there is obviously lots of unacceptable poor behaviour mm. where people use networking, uh, not for professional purposes, but for, but for ulterior purposes. But equally, uh, I think learning how to do it professionally... So you, you, it's a way of, particularly when you, uh, if you're networking uh, with someone of the opposite sex, you can make you can make clear just in the way in which you approach it that you are doing it for the right reasons. Mm. I think that is all part of being business appropriate, and it's and it's something that you do just just get, and it comes to some people more naturally than others. How do you send an email 
that that adopts the right tone. You know, I, I've seen it, particularly working with some more junior people. We're off to courts. Someone who hasn't done it much before, and they start the conversation with the client. What's what's the right kind of thing to bring up? What mm. be, uh, what makes you sound a bit idiotic in the in the situation? How do you judge that? All all of that is about is about learning, and and I, I do think it's important that people appreciate that that that's a skill, and it's just a reality of life. That however much we all do one side of our job well, the the main side of the the job, you know, you Mike, if you if you didn't get on with people at talk radio, you wouldn't still wouldn't be in a job because they wouldn't want to work with you. And mm. it's it's a, it's the same in almost any walk of life. Frankly, you don't want to be that kind of person who doesn't get get on with people. So, learning how to how to act in an office is is I think a really important skill. Yes, and even more so I think now than than ever. I mean, I was going to ask you actually as a barrister because I presume you're not doing uh, much barristering at the moment given that most of the courts are not really open. Do you get out of practice if you haven't done it? Because, I mean, it's one of those things, I don't really ever think about it too much, but if I take a couple of weeks off, uh, as I remember I used to do in the dim, dark, dark past when we could go on holiday, um, you'd sort of feel when you came back that you might be slightly rusty. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely right. I mean, we we actually are lucky in that the, the courts are open remotely. So to give you an example, I did a four-week trial before Christmas okay. where everything was done remotely. We had interpreters, uh, and it was all done all, all done on Microsoft Teams, so mm. that that worked pretty well. But we haven't been in real court, and obviously it's not the same. Uh, being in a in a room with someone, being able to use your presence in the room, or what you hope is your presence, yeah. uh, you know that that changes it. You do, you do get rusty in the same. It's very similar to being on the radio. Richard Madeley, actually, I was on a show with him once, and he said it to me. He, mm. he said, you know, whenever you're broadcasting, you always need to make sure whatever you're offered take it if you mm. haven't been on for a while because you're not match fit as he puts right. it and i think he's absolutely right and i see the same thing when it comes to to broadcasting as being in court if you haven't been in court for a month or two uh you know you can be a little bit rusty when you, when you start and so i think it's really important just to it, it is match fitness that is what i would call it yes i'm intrigued by a court system run on microsoft i wonder if there's like a sort of a, a guilty button that you just press right <laughs> <laughs> well there could be lots of there could be lots of mishaps with the mute button i can tell I you can i've imagine. seen one or two of them yeah i mean what happens in that situation like if you're a lawyer and you say something which is supposed to be for your client's ears only but it somehow gets broadcast what what, what can the judge then ask whoever it is that's watching or listening to disregard it or something if you gave if you gave something away uh, well there can be very serious scenarios i mean there was one uh, one case where in fact i think there was effectively a mistrial and the, and the case had to be heard again because of what was said o- over uh, the platform oh. because obviously you're you're having confidential discussions amongst your own team you're talking about what you think the, the witnesses are saying whether mm. they're lying or not all that kind of thing <laughs> if that if that if that gets said uh, in public, that's obviously incredibly serious. So right. you, the consequences are pretty huge, and this is all taken very seriously. Uh, the the one that I saw was someone just uh, dropping an f bomb, and uh, and it didn't matter. It was actually pretty pretty funny. It wasn't right. about anything co- consequential, and everyone <laughs> fortunately had a sense of humour. But um, but you know, in if you're if you're talking specifically about confidential matters, which obviously my, my, the one I saw wasn't, uh, you know that that can be really serious. And it's in the same way as you're having to learn in for networking and and, and broadcasting over over uh, digital platforms, over Zoom or Teams or whatever it is, learning advocacy doing it over the internet is, is a different skill. Mm. And we as barristers, uh, you know, put, a, put quite a lot of work and are having to try and adapt to that and to do it in the best way. Yes, because even just sometimes knowing when to speak 
um, is, 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 is difficult for, for some people. But fascinating stuff, Bobby. Thank you very much indeed. Bobby Friedman, barrister, political commentator, a man never short of words, and neither am I, and neither should we be. Uh, but chit-chat, uh, apparently there's now lessons in how to make small talk uh, without making a mistake and getting it wrong uh, and upsetting people. I mean, goodness me. I mean, it's what's, whatever next is what I can say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, um, I was talking to my sister, as I said earlier in the show, and she told me about how she'd been out for a meal with some friends of hers uh, in Connecticut. And I went, what's that? You went out for a meal? Really? I can't remember the last time I went out for a meal. I think it was sometime in early December, but I'm not absolutely certain. Because you know how the months just roll into one another. Because in November, they were all shut, the restaurants, weren't they? I think they reopened in December, and I think I went to a restaurant. But I've only been out probably for dinner maybe four times since the beginning of this nonsense last March. Let's find out how Emma McClarkin's doing, CEO of the British Beer and Pub Association. Emma, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Very frustrating time it must be to do what you do. Um, how are the kind of members of your association bearing up and, and, and how many of them have kind of fallen by the wayside? Well, this has been, uh, you know, a devastating time for the sector, the biggest crisis uh, that we've ever faced. And I have to say things are getting really, really tough. You know, we're right in the face of business failure, many people coming to the end of their resources. And morale, I have to say, for our workforce is pretty low. Mm. It is really, really difficult with so much of the speculation about the future of our industry being played out on the front pages. Yes, because, of course, you know, the stop-start kind of way that things have been going can't have been helpful to an awful lot of people who, who after all, are dealing with perishable items, aren't they? It, absolutely. And the decisions that were taken in and around Christmas cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of wasted stock that people had got in and uh, hasn't been really recompensed for uh, by any of the support that we've received from the government. Uh, and we do know that whilst we are in support of grants um, and we're grateful for what we have got, it doesn't cover our fixed costs whilst we're remaining closed. So the cash burn effect in the background for our sector is somewhere close to 150 million a month. And that's after all grants received. It is, um, it's almost untenable mm. that we can continue being closed. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because there was an insurance issue, I think, as well with some places where they weren't getting covered by insurance, when in fact, um, the, the government money wasn't covering them at all. I mean, we've spoken to, to lots of publicans over the course of, of the year, really. Uh, many of them, when they were in, say, for example, tier two, said, look, we'd rather be put into tier three because at least in tier three, you can get some compensation. Tier two is a nonsense because you only allow like four people into the pub and they all have to sit a mile away from each other and they have to have something to eat. And, you know, the restrictions have just been really almost as bad as they could be. Uh, no, they absolutely have. And I was contacted by a publican only yesterday. You're paying hundreds of pounds a month for insurance and they are refusing to pay out mm. for the pandemic um, and the losses that they've had because of that. Um, it is very, very real. You know, this is people's livelihoods. This is their house over their heads. This is how they support their families. And everything is is getting down to the wire. So we desperately need to hear from the, the prime minister what his plans are for getting mm. us reopened. That's what we really need. We want to rebuild our trade 
get ourselves out of the situation, but we need to have a reopening date for them. Yes, I think so, because I was listening to uh, Graham Brady the other day talking to Julie Hartley Brewer, and he was saying that some businesses, and his his, his um, constituency is up near Manchester, and he said some businesses need a bit more time than just saying, you know, on Friday, oh, you can open up on Monday. You know, you need to get stock in, you need to organise staff. You know, he was talking about the airline business and, and how they might need a couple of months to try and get themselves prepared because planes are all over the world, people are, you know, off on furlough, this kind of thing, you know. And so I think we all are willing to, to, to wait for a particular moment, but we need to know when that moment's going to be, don't we? We have stressed this again and again that our great British brewers, that, you know, it takes a good three weeks to mm. get to brew that beer. And of course, we need uh, fresh beer in our pubs to be ready. So we need at least three weeks notice right. in order to get them restocked. But there is a whole supply chain of people that are dependent on the pub sector getting open. It's not just the pubs ourselves, it's the whole of that supply chain. And all of our road to profitability and clawing our way back is dependent on those de on, on those dates. So we desperately need to have that notice, have a date and be able to plan for our businesses to get them back on their feet. Right. And I mean, as far as the, 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 the future is concerned, I mean, would it be helpful, have you even done this, because you may have, uh, of providing the government with, with, with your own evidence to show that there's not really much danger in going to a pub which has already been made COVID secure because people have spent quite a lot of money making sure that that's the case. Absolutely. I mean, we, we got down to, but I think it was below 2% of transmission rates. Um, and we've had very few instances of any outbreaks in any of our pubs. Um, and we've participated fully in test and trace uh, for the government mm. and been commended for doing so. Um, so the reality is we are not a high vector for transmission at all, despite being the back of the queue. And we need that message to get out there to the public, you know, that just because we're last doesn't mean that we are a higher risk at all. We've invested over 500 million in mitigating the risks identified by Sage in that setting. We did that last July. We've made those investments. There's no safer place to go than the pub. No, of course. And as far as the, the rather sort of dopey, strange and unusual kind of little rules that they invented, such as, you know, the curfew at 10 o'clock, they promised that's not going to be put back on, having admitted that it had no basis in science whatsoever. Uh, and also the idea that a substantial meal must be had with your drink. That seems to have gone by the wayside as well. It makes you wonder... Who the hell's coming up with this stuff? Well, unfortunately, you know, we do keep having to restate to them that we covered off all of the risks that Sage had listed in hospitality settings last July, mm. where we reopened safely and successfully to world leading standards. Um, that was recognised and signed off by Public Health England and everybody else uh, at the time also agreed to that. So we've asked them to make decisions based on risk assessments to certain standards and actually that all sectors should be held up to those same standards. We're seeing retail and non-essential retail being able to get open with much lower restrictions than what we have to adhere to in the hospitality sector. Mm. And we desperately need to find a way that we can get pubs open. And restrictions do have a deep economic pact and we have shared all the data on the economic pact of each one of those restrictions that were layered on from September Onwards. Yes. And also, um, you know, when you did open in July, we being great supporters of uh, the Great British Pub, we did a, a, a live show on July the 4th from a pub around the corner from our office here. And, you know, there was no massive increase in infection rates in, in July or indeed in August. Um, so whatever happened and whatever people went to pubs for, it did not cause an increase in COVID infection. Well, we would, uh, of course, uh, see that probably reflected in our staff that are in our buildings. First and foremost, there are 
our primary concern is the people that make up our hospitality business. And of course, we would see large numbers of our staff actually coming down with cases of COVID. And we just have not seen those instances reported. Um, and we've had you know, tens of millions of customers come through our, our venues and, and we haven't seen those outbreaks reported. So this is this is the, the, the situation. This is the data that we are in possession of. And we are ready to, again, reopen as safely as we can to keep our staff and our customers safe. Would you see a kind of a tiered opening process going on, perhaps? Because just before the final kind of lockdown at Christmas, there were certainly in London, I don't know if it was happening elsewhere, there were certainly pubs that were doing sort of takeaway uh, booze so that you could go and, and, and order it on a phone or on, a, on an app, go and get it and then walk away and drink it somewhere else. Yeah, well, we've seen extraordinary resilience from the sector in adapting the, the services that they provide. Some have turned into shops, others have become takeaway. Yeah. And of course, some did sell um, beer um, as takeaway, either within a pint container or or actually sealed um, kegs that were taken away. Mm. Uh, and that, unfortunately, the government took away from us at the last lockdown. That was actually forming a third of the income for some of our pubs. Um, so it was a real blow that they weren't able to do that when the off-licenses were allowed to sell that. Yeah. Of course... You know, they are worried about alcohol consumption and we seem to be bearing the brunt of those concerns. Yes. And so do you, you don't see them likely doing that first then in terms of, say, uh, you know, if they're not ready to open up pubs so that you can actually go inside them, would they be willing to open them up so that some of your clients can actually make some money? Well, it's really important that pubs are still able to sell alcohol. It's at the very core of what we do in a public house and what the Great British Pub is there for. And also we'll support our Great British brewers with our nation's favourite drink. We absolutely need to be having the ability to sell alcohol. Um, but the reality is, is they are apparently through the media, as we've read, considering that we may get an outdoor opening, that would only actually facilitate 17% of pub trade. Mm. And as you can imagine, that is not a sustainable uh, way of doing business that is unprofitable profitable and loss making for many so i imagine even if outdoor opening was considered with the ability of takeaway pints it wouldn't be enough to see our pubs come off that support that they've been receiving from the government so that support would need to continue but frankly we're safe to open up inside inside our venues as we are outdoors so mm. we would like to see a full opening for pubs at easter and as soon as we possibly can yeah i mean as far as many of your businesses are concerned have they sort of still got enough energy and gas in the tank, I suppose, uh, to go till April? Well, we've already uh, unfortunately lost 5% of our pubs um, and there, there may be many more that will be coming in the coming uh, weeks that we have. As I said, everybody is at the very end. The finance that they've had to get, the loans to carry them over, the debt that they're carrying on their back, it is all very precarious. And all the news and information about hospitality being the back of the queue, being under heavy restrictions, not getting back to profitability within a reasonable time frame, puts all of those businesses at extra risk. So we're doing everything we can to say, if you want to save the Great British pub, please set a date. Please set the restrictions so that we can work with you on them to avoid unintended consequences like the curfew and make sure that we can get back to profitability as soon as possible. And what about the different sort of nations and how they've been reacting to all of this? Because I know up in Scotland, it's been really difficult for, uh, for pub owners because even when they were open, uh, they were banned from playing music of any kind in case it was too exciting for people and they started shouting over it or singing or something like that. So, I mean, there is a sense, and I'm sure this is not the case, but there is a sense and I've, from some of the people in the industry I've spoken to that governments don't really like people drinking um, no, uh, and unfortunately in Scotland we've had a terrible experience I have to say throughout this pandemic they've really felt 
the full force of these incredible restrictions that we've seen in Scotland that have uh, banned alcohol sales, that have restricted us only uh, to opening outdoors. And of course, with, with uh, the banning of music and, and sound inside venues, it's really robbed the life and the soul mm. out of our pubs up there. So they have really struggled. And we are hoping that we will hear some news from Nicola Sturgeon today about how she plans to reopen the sector. Um, but it has this knock-on effect on what the very core of the Great British pub is. And we are a community asset. We add so much value, not only to the economy, but also from a social perspective. And when you're stealing every single thing that we do as part of our business model, we're then robbing the very soul of what we do in terms of those venues providing that place for us to meet and come together and celebrate life, death, everything together. Mm. Um, it is very, very bleak outlook that we're seeing for the sector. Yes. I mean, do you think we'll ever see the return of kind of, you know, the, the packed out pub uh, that we all remember so fondly? And, you know, it's been a long time, I'm afraid, for, for me. I think it's probably been, I think it probably it's probably about a year ago since I've been in a packed pub, to be honest, because even in the pubs that we've been in, um, when they have been open, you obviously you've been getting table service or you've been sitting outside. You know, you just haven't really been in a crowd. And a lot of people miss that. Oh, um, and I miss the Great British Pub in the way that it was as well. But we have to recognise that we will be having to operate with some restrictions of social distancing for some time till people feel safe. And we recognise that as a sector and we will play our part for as long as it's necessary to do so. But at some point when that rollout of the vaccine that is being celebrated as it rightly should has been out there the most vulnerable have been protected we should find a way to open gradually and get back to some normality and what better symbol of life getting back to normal is when the pub is the pub again yeah absolutely yeah. right and i mean long term would you expect the business to, to sort of rebound i mean the bank of england have said that they expect there to be a bit of a, a bounce and a recovery come middle to late part of this year i mean presumably that would have to include hospitality well, we are 900,000 jobs in the beer in the pub sector, hospitality over 3 million. We contribute so much to this economy and we can do that quickly if we are allowed to trade to viable business levels. So if we are allowed to get open, we can really boom the economy. We can create jobs. We're seeing unemployment levels that we haven't seen for many years now. We can create those jobs for young people. You know, 43% of our workforce are young people. 54% of them are women. And we are people that can create those jobs, boost the economy and lead the way if we're allowed to do what we do best. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, Emma. Thanks very much indeed. Emma McClark in there uh, from the British Beer and Pub Association, hoping uh, with some uh, alacrity that the government will see sense, that the government will understand, as she says, that breweries need about three weeks. You can't just go, oh, OK, just open the pubs tomorrow then. That's all right. I know that uh, that's not going to happen. I know that Boris Johnson is not likely to get up on Monday of next week and say we can open the pubs. But what he can do is he can say, we hope if we continue to see a fall in infection rates and a fall in death rates to be able to say that you can open the pub on, I don't know, March the 20th or March the 15th or April the 1st so that people can at least make plans. As we've just heard uh, from Emma there, the bottom line for an awful lot of brewers is they need to know when they can start production again because an awful lot of brews, brewed beer now uh, doesn't last very long. It goes off. You know, we've got business owners who have spent a fortune to make their pubs literally covid safe they've spent lots and lots of money as have loads and loads of restaurants we haven't forgotten about restaurants because we'll talk to them through the course of this week as well but you need to get staff back in place you need to get uh, the places cleaned up you need to get everything ready 
spick and span for opening up for business once more. And it really does behoove the government, it seems to me, that they need to produce a proper roadmap. None of this kind of vague, blurry, oh, well, we hope to open pubs by May. No, that's not good enough. If you're running a business, you need to know a lot more specific news than that, don't you? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.